0: Hi, this is Tamika Kasten-Miller, and you are listening to Think, Flow, Grow. At the end of this and every episode, you will find a meditation, so stay tuned. This episode contains sensitive material and or material that may not be best listened to on speaker. So listen in your car or with earbuds. Today I'll be talking about women, sex, and the language of women. For more than a decade, I was an educator in the public school system. During that time, it's really interesting to see how gender roles are crafted. From a very young age, girls are told to do certain things, boys are told to do certain things. uh, the dress codes of schools certainly do not help to create a gender-free environment. Uh, it's been very well publicized that dress codes are definitely uh, more directed to girls than to boys by saying how long a skirt can be or uh, the, the inches that a top, uh, the sleeves on the top have to have and things like that. But what's really interesting is the role that adults play in helping to create these gender norms. And what I would say is actually a creation of the box into which women are oftentimes put. This box creates a lot of problems as we get older. This reminds me of a conversation that one of my favorite students had with me. It was a couple of years ago, and she was an athlete, At the time, she had been experiencing a lot of change in her body. Um, Not only was she getting older, but also she was becoming more womanly. And at the same time, her baby fat was going away. She had worked really hard to change her diet and to begin uh, the process of sculpting her figure. I was super proud of her for this. And uh, she was quite inspiring for me as someone who uh, really didn't have uh, the commitment to do something like that at her age. And so, of course, she started to get a lot of flack from friends, especially those friends who hadn't made those same changes. Boys began to look at her more differently. Um, Boys began to make comments, and um, she would oftentimes come to my classroom to Talk to me about what her ex-best friend said and how sad she was that their friendship was ending because she was doing something good for herself. Sadly, this dynamic between women really is no different when we're adults. I remember Oprah Winfrey speaking to this about how when you are making changes for yourself, oftentimes that involves changing friends too because a lot of friends like to see their friends fell, even though we think that their friends are really not. So this student of mine, she comes to me one day as, as interesting and as, as terrible as it sounds, even though we know that it's true, that's actually not what this story is about. She comes to me one day and she had gotten in trouble with her coach. She got in trouble with her coach because she cursed on the pitch. He told her that is not the way that good girls talk. Now, as a public school educator, we are not allowed to give our opinions on anything that could be construed as controversial or divisive. I was not good with this. FYI, if any of my former bosses are listening to this, I absolutely had opinions on everything and I made them known because... Silence is siding with the side of the oppressor. So my student tells me this and I immediately was furious. First of all, who is he to mansplain her behavior? And secondly, what the hell is a good girl? The sexism in his comment was horrible. And she was in ninth grade. Now, fortunately, She knew that it was a sexist comment. And I credit the people, the women around her. I credit her for being an intelligent girl and for her being a forward thinker because someone else might have taken that comment to heart. But she said, I think that that was a ridiculous comment. Why should girls talk one way and boys talk another way? And why should I be trying to be a, quote, good girl, according to what he thought. I was like, yes, queen. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Good on you. You know what? Forget him. That was a horrible comment. He doesn't get to decide how you get to behave, how you get to talk. The only person that gets to decide that is you he has an agreement about made about how girls should be and god help his wife and his future daughters but for sure you get to say whatever you want now that said is it appropriate for you to be cursing in front of your elders or in an academic environment now that's something to be argued You know that I do not like for cursing to happen in this room, but I'm going to tell you right now, I curse all the time and I don't really care about being good or bad according to people who I don't respect. So this leads me to the incredible lesson for you to learn, which is do not be defined by people who you don't respect. Don't even attempt to earn their respect because they don't deserve it. So, of course, um, this student of mine and I, we still are in communication with one another, even though I've since left the classroom. But it was a really interesting moment in education because I I thought about how adults, uh, how we use our own implicit bias to create norms that are absurd Uh, within children. And I don't want to hear anyone talking about how teachers do this and teachers do that. You know what? Teachers are adults who live in a society and that society is reflected in a teacher's comportment and their interactions with students and, and all the rest of it. And so while we're here, I'll take a quick tangent to say that if you do not like the language of teachers, you need to check the environment that you're living in that is creating that language because all humans are are battling an environment that, that we are living in and trying to discern what part of that battle is meaningful for them. And it all depends on how well they are coping with and embracing their shadow selves. Now I will discuss the shadow self at an, at another in-depth in another episode. But everyone is in that battle between the self that they show to the world and the self that they show they only show themselves, or the self that only comes out when things times get difficult. And depending on how well a person is doing that is going to determine how much they are projecting the crap in their own lives onto other people. And this includes people with whom they work, and people with whom they uh, influence. So coming back to this language, this also reminds me of moments that I have had as a, a teenager. I remember I was raised by a very strict military father, Actually, really hope he doesn't listen to this episode. I don't know. If he does, maybe he can kind of learn something, although he's, he's older, so nothing's going to change. And I love you, Dad. If you're listening, I mean, it's fine. I'm <laughs> but I was raised by a very strict father who had very strict mores, very strict codes of behavior that he had learned from his own very strict upbringing in Mississippi This is uh, Jim Crow South. Um, His father had been uh, a sharecropper. I mean, you know, these are are tough people, right? And I remember I had posters on my wall of groups I loved, you know, I'm Gen X, I I loved Depeche Mode and The Cure. And 21 Jump Street was a thing. Johnny Depp had just become a thing. And so I had like 21 Jump Street posters and all these things and they're on my wall. And I remember my dad coming in and saying, what are you doing with all of these men on the wall? Why are you lusting after these men? Something like that. FYI, I've totally forgotten most of my middle school years because... They were, I don't know if they were that damaging or if they were that irrelevant, but I I have forgotten a lot about middle school. It could also just be because I'm 45 and we can only remember so much. But yeah, he he created a curiosity in me actually because I didn't know what the hell he was talking about. I knew that I really enjoyed these bands. I knew that Johnny Depp was hot. That I did know. um i I thought the guys in depeche mode were attractive um and i I did not understand why I was being talked to about a sexual nature that i hadn't I wasn't yet aware of. Of course, this ends up backfiring on my dad because. Of course then I became super curious, right? So I, I just remember like finding a book in a library that was like, um, oh, I, I wish I could remember the name, but it was a giant book. Oh, I think it was called Men and Sex. Because I was just then really curious about sex, like what, you know, okay, what is the sex thing, blah, blah, blah. Um, I, I also did not know at the time that my, my father was um, actively engaged in, several affairs. So again, his shadow side was coming out. He was projecting that onto me. And, um, and of course that was, that was what was happening. The, the big production was all about him. It wasn't about me. Of course, I, w- I think I was in seventh grade. I, I didn't know anything at that time. This is way before all these kids have access to information. So I, I knew nothing. I start reading uh, using my voracious nature as a reader to learn about sex and then I came across the book everything you always wanted to know about sex but were afraid to ask and I learned so much (laughs) I was like wow this is awesome this is this is interesting And when it came to my first sexual experience, which was younger than my parents would have hoped, and certainly what most people knew, when it came down to that, it was very clinical. I was just curious about all of the things that i read about and how they came to pass and the embodiment of what I'd read in all those books. So it was very much like, oh, this is that point in which this happens and that happens. Anyway... Fortunately, um, my curious nature has been used for the good of the world now, (laughs) and I would say that my curious nature, even then, was used for good. And so I start noticing the way that men and women act toward one another, and I also started noticing the way that women and women act toward one another. I've noticed that women will oftentimes silence women in the way that we speak or do things. This is what interested me in the language of women. So I call the language of women the way that we are always apologizing for things, Um, apologizing for wanting to be heard. Um, I'm so sorry, I just have to say this really quickly. Uh, Or apologizing for having our needs met. I'm sorry, but I just, uh, could we stay a little bit longer? I just wanted to finish my drink. Uh, Apologizing for the desire for validation. I'm sorry to ask, but could you give me your honest opinion on how I look in this? Of course, we also have the language of just apologizing in general for being human, making human mistakes, um, and this very apologetic nature, I think, plays into these roles and that women uh, roles that women have been forced to play over the years. Now, I'm a linguist, as you may have read. I'm a fluent Spanish speaker. And I I remember people telling me, you know, the way that Spaniards speak is so rude. You know, in Latin America, we're much nicer. Or in Mexico, we're much nicer. We say please and thank you. We, we, you know, say things that ask essentially for, for permission to be a part of the conversation. And I've said, well, I mean... That doesn't mean that Spaniards are rude. That means that Spaniards are direct. And part of the reason why in Mexico, for example, there is this obsequious nature, uh, you know, uh, asking for permission and and inherent in the way that uh, speech is formed is because it's the colony. It was the colonies. I mean, people... In the colonies could not speak the same way as the colonizer. We had to be um, more subservient in the way that we spoke. It wasn't a choice. People didn't choose to ask for permission for everything. That was something that was whipped and beat into us. And this is also true of the language of women. If we go back historically, we, the interesting thing is that the role of women change changes over time. If we're looking at, for example, the Renaissance period, um, this is depending on what part of the world you're frame from which you're framing the Renaissance. But we'll say um, we'll go with the mid 1300s um, through the 16th century. Women become the object of the male gaze. This is when we start to see um, women being depicted uh in murals like the birth of venus where women are very voluptuous and um and certainly being seen by the observer and the the male gaze is a uh, well depicted in la maja desnuda by francisco goya where he has painted this naked woman this is not in the renaissance this is baroque period but he is uh, i'm sorry the romantic period but he has painted this uh, this woman naked and he's painted her clothed and it, it's demonstrative of the male gaze that began in the, in the Renaissance. And we, we notice this, uh, uh this gaze being directed at women, um, as being sexual objects. Now, before this in medieval times, women really didn't have an opportunity to get to be um, sexual objects because we were too busy being um, bargaining chips. We were busy being the prize for generals who were winning wars or winning uh, battles. Women were forging relationships between countries and kingdoms. So women were prized literally prized possessions and, um, and were certainly not being seen for, you know, who they were or had, had, what they had to offer. It was certainly just a matter of, well, um, my family and yours, we need to be friends or my kingdom and yours, we need to unite, so here is my daughter to make that happen. So women, of course, are, are being used in this way during uh, the Middle Ages. And curious, so of course, for me being a curious person, I was interested in what were the roles before and after those times. When we go to before those times, we have women working alongside men and certainly in African cultures, women are doing a lot. When we look at African cultures, we see matriarchal societies. We see women as as chiefs, we see women as hunters, huntresses, we see um, women doing a lot because a lot is required during that time. Um, of course, uh, we're, we're looking at pre-modern um, ease, and so women and men are needed to, to do what is necessary, but also there is this understanding of the feminine divine amongst women. Within uh, the Yoruba religion, Ifa, we have the goddesses or the orishas who are very important. Oshun, Jemaidya, all these women who are are wielding power, and they have the ability to to change um, a situation. Demaja, if she is not uh, pleased, she can hold on to the fish in the sea and so villages can starve and and not be fortified now yes we also have um strong male figures um ogun and Shango. um we we you know we we have those those people um in that in the culture but it's but the the difference is that there's not a well um, Shango is more important than Oshun, for example. There are there is a symmetry and an equity in in the importance of these roles in African culture. That's now this is pre-colonial times. Even though yes, we still of course that that religion is still um, is still proliferating and is still um, influencing. I want to pause there and fast forward to. Times after the, the Renaissance period and into uh, colonialism, if we look at what happened when people were coming to the Americas, they men and women also their roles also had to change because there was there was no room for courtly life. There was no room for um, you're going to sit here and 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 read all day or learn how to play the piano while i go out and forage men and women had to come together to create communities and cities and women especially black women start uh, turning into a uh, or start having a very important role in society because a procreation requires women so this is important within the colonial standpoint but then also with black women in particular, because so many uh, colonists were coming over or uh, just men, uh, women then become the objects of their lust and their desire so that they can then have women do whatever they want with women and then um, carry on about their day until... European women start coming to the colonies this is the role of black and indigenous women during that time and so this shifting nature begins in which women now are sexual objects but can't be sexual creatures without the permission of the men who are colonizing them then there has to be so if you look at the women of color. They become these sexual objects who are objectified, denigrated, and eventually raped by uh, European men. And then their European or white counterparts become the opposite. So they become the women who are dainty, who um, have sex in a particular way, who are not demanding, who are... Um, The genteel uh, aspect of the feminine because they have to be the opposite of this animalistic woman of color who deserves then her treatment and being raped or objectified or, or used essentially for the colonizers desires. So of course, this is going to develop into a language, if you will. There's there's a non-spoken language or an unspoken language amongst women of color in which they are then trying to make themselves less feminine um, in order to be left alone or more attractive in order to have a path of ease or relative ease in their enslaved states. And then there are the, there are the white women who then become this um, Stepford wife type um, self in which they are the picture perfect wife that is somehow able to keep her husband happy or keep her husband under control or what have you. And of course, it's not that easy. Of course, there are women in the middle, and there are women who are out there doing what they need to do to survive, um, white and black women and indigenous women and Latinas and the whole nine. I mean, there's, there is a lot in the middle, but what I'm speaking to is this creation of, of language and sexuality uh, amongst women during this time because of survival. And so now when we look at this time in 2019, we're now seeing how decades, centuries of this have turned into, well, you're a girl, you act a certain way. You're a woman, you act a certain way. And the way that you act is not sexual. Interestingly, we society asks for women to not be sexual because it aligns the sexual woman with that animalistic nature of the enslaved or occupied woman. When we look at women who are genteel and and non-sexual, then they are this sweet woman who then needs protecting. And she becomes this idealized woman who... um, keeps court the court of the house all of this is 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 old and this is this is patterning that's been beat into us and and uh over the times but my point in all of this is that none of this is authentic nature realistically women are sexual beings and we're designed as sexual beings I remember reading um, a post my, that my daughter shared with me. I think it was on Tumblr. I don't do Tumblr, maybe eventually. But in this post, it said that the clitoris dysfunction is for procreation. And that's why women shouldn't masturbate or something like that. And I, and, and my daughter and I both laughed. Thank God my daughter laughed as well. My daughter is 24. And thank goodness she laughed as well, because I thought, I have done such a great job. (laughs) Because if you know anything about a woman's body, you know that the clitoris has absolutely no part in anything other than stimulation. That's it. The clitoris doesn't help you get pregnant. The clitoris doesn't help you have babies. Um, It's solely for the purpose of sexual desire and stimulation. And this is why there is female genital mutilation, because somewhere along the line, men who were attempting to repress a woman's sexuality or sexual nature knew that by removing the clitoris, it would remove all of the capabilities of the woman to just enjoy sex while giving her the opportunity to continue to procreate. The, the funny thing is, is that here in Western culture, there are a lot of opinions about FGM. And uh, in fact, I got into a pretty heated argument with some people about it, not because I'm a proponent of FGM, my God, no. But because there are so many ways in Western culture that in which we're trying to cut off or alter female sexual desire women are either supposed to engage in or, or live their female sexual desire or their sexual desire through the auspices of a relationship or be called, you know, a slut because they're not. And, um, it, it's funny. I, I actually, uh, knew, uh, a person who is reading the book the ethical slut and and hysterically so many of the people have read that i know who have read the ethical slut are men um <laughs> trying to find ways in order to be ethical in their slutty behavior because women don't want to be called sluts and i just think it's interesting that this we have a whole name for it so what what are the problems with this? And then of course, what is the answer? Well, the problems um, are represented in situations like the most recent uh, revelations about Palacio Domingo, having utilized his power and position in order to will that to sexually harass women. This is of no surprise to me at all I mean, I've been a woman now for 45 years and I have been in corporate America. I've been in public education and I have and now I'm on my own doing my own thing. And in all of those situations, I have seen women be put into situations to use gender in order to do something. I have seen in corporate America for sure. I have used my own sexual nature, my own sexual prowess, my own sexuality in order to negotiate deals. I'm not saying I never, ever use sex to negotiate a deal, but I'm saying using the nature, using my feminine, divine ways to engage with men in a powerful way. And that and in such a powerful way that they did not know how to say no to anything that I was, I was asking for. I, and the funny thing was, is it wasn't an act. This is just who I was. I just was being authentic in my engagements with people and wasn't repressing who I was as a human, which is a, a sexual person, a sexual sensual being. In public education, I've seen this play out differently. I have never witnessed anyone use um, or any, any person use sexuality in order to advance. I think that that is more of a farce than uh, what people like to say. I do know of people who have been cu- accused of that. But I also think that the accusers of those women were female misogynists. What I have seen though is how, and what I have engaged in myself is using womanness to my target audience to achieve what is necessary. So for example, if my boss was a woman, I knew I had to approach in a certain way of needing help. If a boss was a man, I knew that I needed to approach from a position of power and what is in it for him. I figured out at a young age, I want to say that I was around 21 or 22, when I realized that a strong black woman was threatening to a lot of people. And I don't know why that's still a thing, but my best guess is that White women and black women were pitted against each other for hundreds of years in the South. And my answer for that is colonial hangover. How a white woman looks at a black woman in today's age as competition is is really unfortunate. And that is actually what it is. Whether or not we want to say it's something else, that is what it is. Fortunately, I'm around a group of women who are actively learning from one another and we're all, we're a diverse group of women. So I can't say that that competitive nature comes into play amongst my female friends. Thank God. But I have seen it. I've lived it. And I have been told numerous occasions how I'm intimidating, how I need to turn it down, um <clears throat> yeah. So I, I real in fact I just had an interaction yesterday with a fellow yogi who didn't like my tone on an email. My tone was direct. The question was asked, how much should something cost? The something was my time. When I gave the answer, the person was deeply offended and was so reactionary in her response. And, you know, that could possibly be an episode for another time, but you're going to pay me for my time. And if you ask me a question, I'm going to answer it. I'm going to answer in a direct way because I know who I am and I know what I'm worth. And the sad thing is that, when we don't know that, if we don't know what we're worth or what we're about, or what, what we are actively uh, creating in the world, then anyone gets to tell us that. Anyone gets to tell us our worth, our value, and what we should be doing if we don't have that definition for ourselves. And this is hugely problematic because we're not in a vacuum. We are always sh- teaching a younger generation of how they should or shouldn't be. Now, fortunately, in this younger generation, the ones coming up now and their teens, they are very opinionated and thank goodness they have access to learning about the world and they are learning who they are and who they are not. I believe it's 80% of this generation, it's somewhere between 60 to 80% that, that do not in, identify as straight. I think it's incredible that there's an entire majority of a, of a generation that just identifies as who they are and not checking off a particular box to define themselves. Imagine what more these younger women will be doing in the world when they do not have to conform to being a tool that is used by um, a corporation or men or even other female friends to acquire something or do something or be something in the world. But they are, the, they are making those decisions on their own. So then what is the answer? Well, I've mentioned yoga sutra 1.3 before, 1.30 before, but I'll mention it again, just by the practice of and the discipline of doing the yoga. The practice of of moving our bodies, stretching our bodies, meditating, of concentrating, of minding the way that we engage with others, minding the way that we engage with ourselves, all of those things that actually make up yoga. When we are doing that, we are then able to come into our true nature. We're able to see ourselves more clearly and come into our true nature. This is so important. If we do not come into our true nature then anyone else gets to tell us what our nature is and in an environment in which in any male dominated environment in any patriarchal society that means that women will do what is required in order to survive or thrive and, and is is that truly consent is any of it truly consent if you're doing what you, ha- you feel that you have to do in order to thrive or survive? This is a question that I, I would address in, in topics around Sally Heming and Thomas Jefferson. Who people um, were talking about their relationship and that they had a long thriving relationship for you know years. And my question is how is, is she able to give consent if she's an enslaved woman? if he truly wanted to ask for her consent to be with him, he would have freed her and given her an option. And this is true of, of any situation of that nature. And when we're in situations like the, the one that, that has come up recently with Plessy Domingo, well, you don't have to have sex with me, but if you don't have sex with me, you're not going to star in this role. As, as a person who is in the arts or as a person who is in business or any other type of business, that's an impossible choice. Either have a career or no, depending on the, the sexual politics, that's an impossible choice. And it's one that most men are not making. And this isn't to say that men don't get sexually harassed. Come on. I mean, I I hope that I am not so unenlightened to think that this is something that only women can do. But what I am saying is that in a patriarchal society in which men are still making more than women, men are still employed at higher levels than women, um, men are still majorly the decision maker, not only in business, but also in their households, when we, when we have that as the case, then women are far more likely to be in this situation of needing to play a certain role, needing to do a certain thing in order to get uh, what she needs to survive or thrive. And so, of course, we're going to be in a Me Too environment because I don't know a single woman who hasn't been in a situation where she's either had to use sex or has had to use a genderized uh, version of herself or has had to or has had that decision made for her um, in an assault situation. I don't know a single woman who hasn't had some sort of, of situation that she's been put in that she would have preferred not to be put in. That was solely because of the fact that she was a woman. And so as we go deeper into cultivating our practice, the practice of whatever is your practice, of meditation or active asana, yoga, whatever, whatever it is, the more we do that, the more we are developing the relationship to self. And this relationship to self then helps us see ourselves more clearly, helps us see our desires more clearly. So then we don't have to ask for permission to engage in those desires. We don't have to ask for forgiveness for being sexual, sensual, sentient beings who get to say yes or no to whatever they want. And we're not creating a society that requires a lot of forced yeses because everyone then... If we're in the work, everyone begins to be affected by this knowledge of self. And so my hope for you all is that, especially women, is that we are creating communities in which women are being empowered by one another and encouraging one another to empower themselves, that men are listening listening to us and respecting us as equals who are sexual sensual sentient beings that we are all in this together that all of us as humanity are only using 20% of our brain so how could we possibly know everything that there's a a mystique and a mystery to um, sexuality and sensuality and to men and to women and that we can embrace all of those things in order to be uh, a more unified and authentic society perhaps if we're doing that then perhaps all of the other work of compassion and forgiveness and empathy then becomes easier because everyone is operating in truth What about you? What are your stories about how your own sexuality or sensuality has been questioned or shoved into a box? And or how have you been made to feel less than just by being who you are as a full and complete woman? Send me your comments to tamika at Asheyoga.com, And next week I will have River Davis on Um, as a special guest and we will address some of your comments. We will talk more about this topic as well as the feminine and masculine divine. Come to a comfortable seat in preparation for meditation. Begin to notice your breath. Notice your inhales originating at your nose. Draw an inhale all the way through your nostrils to the pit of your belly. As you exhale, notice your exhale escaping through your nostrils again. Inhale. Notice your inhale traveling toward your chest. Exhale and allow for your chest to contract as your breath escapes your nostrils. Take a full deep inhale, travel your breath to your belly. Take a long exhale, allowing for your belly to contract again. This time, inhale all the way to the root, the place where you're touching the ground or the seat under you. Exhale, allow your breath to travel back out on the long journey, passing your belly and your heart and out through your nose. On your next inhale, draw your inhale up to the crown of your head. And exhale out through your nose. And this time, attempt to inhale in both directions, toward the crown of your head and the root. Fill your inhale, fill everything from your crown to your pelvic floor. And exhale, allow for the creation of new space. Continue to send your breath toward your crown and your root. Fill your body as one whole symphony. Now bring your awareness to your low belly. Begin to notice your breath as awareness. Give your breath a color, orange. And see this orange color light awareness at the lowest part of your belly. If it helps, bring your hand to your belly. On every inhale, your breath becomes more orange light awareness. And as you exhale, it grows more vibrant. Notice any sensations here in the pit of your belly or any lack of sensations. Notice the depth of the color of orange here. Is it light? Is it dark? Bring awareness to the width of the awareness. Does this awareness hover only in the front of your belly? Or does it also travel to the back? Sense a depth of your awareness from your low belly in the front all the way to your sacrum in the back. On your next inhale, expand both your belly and your low back. And as you exhale, allow for them to collapse again. And do that again, bringing your awareness to your low belly and low back. Expanding with breath. And as you exhale, allow for this expansion to... Contract. Orange awareness hovers here. Growing brighter and deeper on every inhale. And more vibrant on every exhale. This is your sacral area the area where your sacral chakra is housed. This is also the house of creativity, sexuality, sensuality. Notice that this is also the place where your reproductive organs are housed. Notice any sensations in or around this area now. fill your low belly filling with breath and deepen its color orange. Vision for yourself now. What is it that you would like to create What in your life are you creating? How in this moment are you participating in the creation of your vision? What are the gifts of this moment in the creation of your most enlightened, happy, and healthy life. Now see yourself as a sexual being. See yourself engaging in a way that is happy and healthy for you. See yourself as a fully expressed sexual and sensual being. What does that look like for you? Perhaps say one or all of these affirmations that resonate with you. I am a creative and engaged being. I create for my truth. I am passionate. I express I express myself truthfully, and I love myself dearly. I am a sexual sensual and sentient being. I give myself permission to experience pleasure and understand that it is a part of my divine nature. I am whole and complete. And since whatever affirmation, the affirmation that resonates most with you since it becoming a part of who you are. And acknowledge your wholeness, your divinity, your divine nature reflective of that which is bigger than you. Acknowledge that all of the parts are yourself, were meant for you. And that you are in co creation of your best life right now. You are a co creator of the desires of your heart. you are the definer of your nature and how you operate in this world acknowledge yourself as co-creator of the way that you will participate in your relationships not only with others but also your relationship to self And see this orange bright light get brighter. Take a full breath in, deepening the orange color. And on your exhale, see this orange energy spread from your root all the way to the crown of your head. See yourself as orange light. bask in this creative sensual energy as you inhale through your nostrils inhale toward the crown of your head and your seat orange light allowing it to radiate in all parts of your body And on your ready, begin to come back to yourself. Seated on your seat, noticing your body, noticing your breath. And in full acknowledgement of your way of being as being a sensual, sexual, sentient being, with autonomy and agency to move about your life in a way of your co-creation. Deepen your breath. And slowly and on your ready, open your eyes and see your world in a new light. It is always my pleasure to leave you better than I found you. I hope that happened for you today. Namaste. You've been listening to Think, Flow, Grow. This is Tamika with Asha Yoga. I'd love to hear your feedback and would love to hear any topics that you'd like for me to address Feel free to email me at Tamika at AshaYoga.com. Also, you can go to that website to find out upcoming workshops, retreats, and events in your area.